He gets that joke. That's my best dad joke I got. Thank you, Miranda. Hey, my joke, not yours. <laughs> um, yeah, 2020. There's a picture I have up here of, uh, that's kind of how I, remember, remember Y2K when it was 1999 and we were so afraid the computers were going to all switch off and if the computers went, we would probably blow up or something because we can't eat food without computers. But the, it was kind of like that for, for uh, New Year's Eve for us. It's like 1159 and we're all excited and then all of a sudden it was like 1160 for the first time ever. We're like, it's supposed to be 12. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, in reality, 2020 did win uh, for some people. There's a lot of people um, that I saw lived in a lot of fear and terror and depression. Uh, some had fear and terror over a virus or fear and terror and depression over how the government was using the virus to destroy our society and turn us into the Soviet Union. You know, so I think for some people, there was, there was a lot of fear this past year. A lot of people fear one. Um, but, of course, not so with us because we have hope in Jesus Christ. And he knows what's going on. And, and he's not caught off guard by this at all, right? Amen? Is that the church word for that's right? So, uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of challenges this last year. And... Just in life. And, and, I, and I remember um, some friends of mine are like, I'm excited for 2021. And, and I just remember when it turned midnight, the virus was still there. And I thought for sure when that hit, we got to throw our masks out, you know, but it is still here. And challenges are still going to come. And, and it, let me be Debbie Downer. Uh, birth pangs. Jesus talks about birth pangs happening. You know, and birth pangs get more intense before the sun comes or, you know, and it's going to get a little bit more challenging. And, and I do sound like a Debbie Downer, I guess. I guess there's no way around it. Um, you know, there's some challenges that we have to face in life. And Satan's going to try to use those challenges to destroy us. But the Lord also wants to use those challenges to help us have hope and to remember that it's about him and not about us. And uh, I prayed this week, Lord, I am in your discipleship program. So I will go through whatever you want me to go through. Just give me the wisdom and strength to know how to go through these situations. You know, we're in his program. Isn't that good news? You know, for us, he doesn't, it's not like, Oh, you mean McVeigh's got COVID? Oh, shoot, I, I screwed up. I forgot about McVeigh's, you know. No, he knows what's going on. And he might be like, you know, Kurt McVeigh is so busy. Let's give him COVID because he needs to just relax for a week or two, you know. Hopefully he died in jinx you there. <laughs> I don't think I did. All right, well, anyhow, this, how, so how do we live in this time? Uh, this morning we're going to talk about finishing well in life. And if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Thessalonians 4. Pastor J.D. asked me to preach on 1 Thessalonians 4, and you'll understand why I said that in a little bit. Um, but uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 is this morning's passage. And we all struggle with this thing called the faith, right? Um, there are two big camps that I've seen in Christianity. Will this help the popping go down like that? Oh, 
I figured my manly beard was... Uh... Anyhow, uh, there's two camps in faith that I've seen. The first one I'm not that familiar with. Uh, it's, it's called the Cultural Christianity Camp. And there's a country song called Mama's Broken Heart. Anybody ever hear that song before? By, it's by Miranda Lambert. Not, a, not the best person, but, but nonetheless, the song is a good illustration of this. Um, in the song, she's talking about how this type of Christian has this image that they have to maintain, you know. Um, this girl has this terrible broken heart and her life has fallen apart. But her mom says, put on your makeup, you know, cross your legs, dot your eyes, never let them see you cry. And in other words, you've got to keep it together. Uh, this camp of Christianity, you've got to look like you're a solid, well-put-together Christian. You, you ever seen that camp before? You ever been in that camp? And they, and they form these, at best they form fences so that they don't sin. But at worst, they live in fear that someone might see them as not a super Christian. Or they live in fear that somehow they got to earn or keep God's respect. Or they got to keep their lives together and not sin so that they can manipulate God to see how good they are so that he answers their prayers. And that's that camp. Their life verse is from Philippians 2.12. It says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and they're full of fear and trembling of, if I do this, God's not going to answer my prayers and I won't get a new car or whatever, whatever they're praying for. Then there's another camp of Christianity where they're trying to figure this life out. Uh, and this is the camp I'm more familiar with. It's called liberal Christianity. I was raised in the Dutch Reformed uh, denomination as a kid. I don't know if you knew that or not. I don't think I've ever mentioned that before. Um, they rightly believe in God's selection, that God selects some people. But the application of their theology can be terrible. Some people are solid, but other ones are like, what do you mean select? You mean we're children of the covenant. Wow. We, we, we talked growing up that we were children of God's covenant. We entered into the Abrahamic covenant. And we, if we were baptized as an infant, we were forgiven and we were in God's kingdom. So what a lot of people would do there is they'd be like, I'm saved. It's kind of like, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now get lost. You know, it's kind of how they live their lives. Wow, I got salvation. I got that ticket out of hell in my pocket. Now I can live how Ever I want to live. And they would do terrible things. And, and so I was raised with more of that philosophy of salvation. Jesus is our Savior, but thanks for the salvation, now beat it, you know, type of thing. And um, their life verse would be Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the result, not the result of works, um, so that no man should boast, but they would forget verse 10 and 11, for we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, you know. And um, uh, fortunately, I was also, I've also paid attention a little bit when I was a kid. And we used to have a program where men would come along, children, um, up through junior high, and men would pour scripture and pour life skills, you know, how to throw an axe and tie a knot and how to shoot a gun and, and how to read the Bible and all that good manly stuff, right? Um, they drilled John 14, verse 15 in my head. And it says this, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I was hearing Jesus is my Savior, but I was also hearing that someone who is saved obeys him as a Lord. So 
what is the balance here, and, and where do you fall into this? Um, are you the first camp that believes that you need to shape up so that God accepts you? Uh, do you believe you need to earn his love? Or are you the second camp, that you're already holy and, and wrongly that you have no accountability? Um, you know, that second camp as well, they put really their pleasure, their pleasure is God is what I'll say. Um, you know, all of life is about what makes them happy. You know, do you fall into that camp that we don't have to answer to God for how we live our lives? Or there's a third camp, would be more my camp. Do you believe that the Spirit moves in his children to obey him? Where are you at with this? Now, if you're going to walk away with one point from this morning's sermon, it's this. Salvation is more than just salvation from hell. He has called us to be saved and to be separate. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. Or not just our Savior, but he's our Savior and our Lord. And that was my upbringing. That's what we were missing. And I'm like, man, did we miss that? Um, so 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, let's dig in together. It says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The word finally, Paul is going to make a big transition here in this letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, he starts by saying, finally. So if you look back in your Bible um, and you look at the first three chapters, finally what? what is, where is he coming from in the context and now what's he going to get into? Um, he had just got finished saying how much he loved the Thessalonican church. They were a church that was doing a lot of things very well, and maybe you're doing a lot of things well as a Christian. They labored in love. They were steadfast in hope. They accepted God's word with joy. They suffered well. They had faith and love and kindness toward Paul and Timothy and Silas. They were doing a lot of things really well. But then Paul goes on and says, I ask and I urge. So, so he just doesn't ask, he asks and it's like a double ask. You know, he's double asking. What does that mean? Uh, he made a request for them. And the word urge is parakaleo. It means to call alongside. He was calling them, basically saying, hey, walk alongside of me to follow the Lord. How do we live for Jesus? Walk with us as we follow him and as we obey him. Walk with us to please God as we live not for our pleasure, but for his pleasure. And that we do it more and more, it says here. Or we do it in an increasing manner. In our culture, there's um, people like to live on a bell-shaped curve of morality. Do you know what a bell-shaped curve is? Anybody know what a grading on the curve is? If you've had that, raise your hand. If you remember the curve in school. Man, I loved the curve in high school. Basically, you know, the smartest guy got an A+, and the schlep failed, you know what I mean? And, you know, if you really want to get a good grade, just get the smartest guy sick. 
and then you get a better. No, well, maybe you want. I don't know. That's up to you. That's between you and Lord. We're gonna. But um, I loved it because I would look at you know how do I fit in here with everybody else? You know, um, I love the curve, but but God doesn't grade on a curve, does He? I've heard a lot of people say this in our culture. I'm good enough. God's got to be pretty happy with me. They fall into that second camp that I talked about. Or at least I'm not as bad as... Now, everybody has a bad person in their mind. You know, at least I'm not as bad as... Right now, you probably have. At least I'm not as bad as Bill Hepburn. You know? All he does is make... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bill, you're going to beat me up after service, aren't you? <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and then he goes in verse, I, I think Bill's a great guy, by the way. We get along pretty well, don't we? <laughs> verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the, the Lord Jesus. Paul, and, and I was, as I was studying this, I'm thinking, what instructions did they have? Back then, the book of Galatians and James were the only two New Testament books written. So this was written pretty easy right after, about a year after Paul went to uh, Thessalonica to establish the church there. So they would have had perhaps Galatians and James, most likely not, but what they would have definitely had the instructions they were given, if, if you want to look later on, read Acts 15. Acts 15, there was a council in Jerusalem that discussed a big issue, and the issue was, what is a Gentile believer's relationship to the law of Moses? That was the big debate they had in this council in Jerusalem. And after this discussion that they had, and it was a very lengthy discussion, Acts 15 teaches, uh, they came with a conclusion. They wrote a letter to be taken to the churches on how Gentile believers um, are related, what relationship they have to the law of Moses. So Paul would have brought that letter to them, so they had that. And they also had the teachings of Paul and Silas. When Paul and Silas were with them to teach them, here's what Christ taught Here's how to follow the Lord. So those are the instructions that Paul gave them through the Lord Jesus. And Paul was imploring them to live in a manner that pleases God more and more. Church, have you given up on growing and molding yourself to become more like Jesus? Can you say that you are striving to grow and continue to be transformed more and more? Or have you settled and presume on God's grace? I've noticed on the internet that uh, I, the internet to me is kind of a window in people's hearts. You get to see uh, where people stand on certain things. I've noticed that many adults are stuck where they're at. Um, a couple weeks ago I put Proverbs 18 verse 2 on the internet, kind of like a rebuke to my friends on Facebook because I'm such a good friend. And... Um, Proverbs 18.2 says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. On the internet, there are a lot of people expressing opinion. And, and, and really, opinion today has become authoritative. You know, if you have an opinion, and you just believe people ought to listen to it, and if they don't listen to it, they're, gets it? Defriended? They're out of here, you know? And there was one guy I was talking to, an adult, and... Um, we were discussing a topic, and I was asking him a bunch of questions to try to understand his point of view and what he was really saying. And I noticed something in our conversation. He never asked one question. He just put down anything that went against his point of view. 
And I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy is unteachable. You know, he's got not, I, you know, he can't receive, maybe he knows everything, you know. And I asked his forgiveness. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you already knew everything. Please forgive me for questioning your intelligence. So, we're not friends anymore on Facebook. Well, hopefully that'll change someday. Um, I think arrogance retards a person from growing. When a person reaches a point where, and a lot of people do this when they turn 18. I'm an adult now. And, and they quit learning, and now they're the expert on every subject matter. You know, they're called college students. Benjamin Miranda, have you run across any of those in your school? Yeah. They know everything, and they continue, you know. Um, when you decide you know everything, you become arrogant, because there's always more to know until you become like Christ, right? So their growth becomes retarded at that point. God wants us, and Paul is calling the Thessalonians to keep growing in him. Now the youth, speaking of youth, uh, when you were young, do you remember going around thinking, what is God's will for my life? If you're a Christian back then, you probably went around, what is God's will for my life? You know, does God want me to go to college? Does God want me to marry this guy or does God want me to marry this girl? Does God want me to just get a job? Does God want me to work for Debbie my whole life? You know? Wouldn't that be great, Debbie? You had all these employees. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Depends who it is. Does God want me to play the electric twanger back here? Does he want me to carry an M16? What does he want me to do with my life? I want to rock. <laughs> oh, man. You caught that one, Lord. <laughs> Christian youth want to know God's will. I remember in college, there was a guy who wanted to know God's will so much that he would go shopping and he would pray over what toothpaste to buy. I thought it was so pathetic. And, and he, do I buy Colgate or do I, and Lord, what is thy will? And, and I'm like, just buy the crest, man. It tastes better. And, and, uh, but he was concerned, am I secretly supporting Satanism in this? And it was fine, but I'm like, man, just buy that stuff. And uh, Christians want to know God's will. But at some point, some people quit asking, God, what do you want? And they get settled in, in their life. What does the Lord your God and your Savior want you to be about? Let me read this passage in verse 3. For this, and, and this is the middle of this passage, by the way. This is the highlighted, if you're going to highlight a verse, this is the one to highlight because the verse kind of revolves around this, or the whole passage revolves around verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. He wants you to be a, set apart for his purposes. And let me explain to you, I have a picture here. Here's what sanctification Means and, and you first see it in Leviticus 11.44. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And, and Peter reiterates this verse from Leviticus 11. And God's will for our lives, if you want to know it, is your sanctification. So college students looking for God's will, numero uno, your sanctification. And, and to illustrate what sanctification is, I brought two cups here. I brought a common cup, and I brought a holy cup or a sanctified cup. Let me, the common cup here, and 
you guys recognize this from our house. This is a picture of Batman on here, and it's all worn. And this is a common cup. We use it for everything. I use it to drink a big glass of water if I want to. I drink Mountain Dew out of this cup. Uh, guests have drank a lot of things out of this cup. I've even used this cup to water the plants, and, and I've used this cup to uh, fill the plant pots with soil, so there's been dirt in this cup. And, and then I gave it, Curtis came over the other day, and I'm like, here, Curtis, here's, have, have a cup, you know. This is a common cup. We use it for everything. You remember the chip bowl when you were a kid? You used it for potato chips and when someone was sick. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Anybody have one of those? Come on, Rodebeck, raise your, yep, there it is. <laughs> that was a, com- this is a common cup. The word sanctification means to make holy or to be set apart or to dedicate to be pure or to be consecrated. This cup is a special cup in our house. It sits on the shelf and it reminds me of Christ's blood uh, being shed for us. Why this reminds me of Christ? I have no idea. I don't know if this is a cup of you, kind of cup or not, but it just reminds me. And this cup here, um, this is from a student of mine. When he was doing his senior project in high school, for some reason he thought of me and made his whole senior project for me. And that was so special because I'm like, man, that you would go out of your way. to. It was so nice. So this is a cup that's set apart. If you grab this cup, if Ellie grabbed this cup to feed her dollies or to feed a cat or to put Mountain Dew in, no, because I don't want this broken. This is a special cup that I have set aside for a special reason. And that's what sanctification means. It means to be set apart. God has called us as Christians to be a set-apart vessel, special. for. He didn't call you to salvation so that you could be common. He wants you to be separate, and he wants you to be special and set aside for him and his pleasure and his purposes. That's what being sanctified means. Another, one more illustration of this is a wedding cake. And... Um, Anybody remember what you do with the top of the wedding cake? What do you do with that thing? Yes, you save it till next year. You don't eat it. It's not that common cake that everybody eats. It's a special thing. And you stick it in the freezer, and it's very important. And your first anniversary, you pull it out of there, and you enjoy it and remember your wedding. It's a very special time. You, if you don't freeze it, you'll get food poisoning. Did we eat ours? Did we get some? Um, so, so Shelley's brother and his wife, Jeremiah and Tama, they had their wedding and they put the cake in the freezer at, at her parents' house and uh, at Shelley's parents' house, Shelley's mom and dad. And um, so one day, Shelley's dad was like, man, am I hungry? So, so he goes in the fridge and opens it up. Uh, like a tomato in there. You're like, tomato and onions in their fridge always. And that's about it. And um, he's like, man. So he opens the freezer there's cake in there. Whoa. So he pulls the cake out of the freezer and he eats the top of the cake. And he's happy. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so when Jeremiah and Tom had their one year anniversary, like, now we get to celebrate this special, holy, sacred moment. And they go in the freezer and there's no cake in there. And what happened to the cake? We all know who did it, didn't we? Like, obviously, it was Shelly's dad, you know. But uh, you guys get what I mean? We're, we're special. Uh, we're not common. We're called to be separate and special. And interestingly, 
we are both already sanctified and already holy, and we are also at the same time becoming holy. Um, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are called saints. Paul called the Ephesian church, Thessalonican church, saints or holy ones, set apart ones. Romans 8, verse 29 and 30 says, We are already both justified, declare righteous, and we're already glorified. We are born again and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because of our precious Jesus Messiah's work and his blood. And because of that, we have a right standing before God. We are already positionally holy in his eyes. But we also know that there's something wrong with ourselves, right? We also know we have not reached perfection. Anybody here walk around saying, I am St. John. I'm saying, you don't do that. Why? Because you know you still got issues, right? So we're already becoming holy, especially the more you read your Bible, the more you realize, man, I got stuff I need to work on. Romans 7, verse 14 through 25, Paul is very transparent. He says, the things I don't want to do, I do do, and the things I do want to do, do I don't do. Then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God. Jesus saved me. Paul is very transparent about his struggle. Then in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, John tells us to get real about where we're at. He said, if anybody says they don't sin, they call God a liar. Let's put that in street terms. God knows you sin already. Quit faking and pretending you don't. You're not perfect. We all know that, you know. Lord knows that. Romans 8, 13, Paul calls us to... Now, you've got to memorize this word. I'm not going to give you a translation of this word. Paul calls us to mortify our flesh, to put to death the deeds of the body. But that word mortification is such a good, you can't, there's no a synonym that fits like mortification. Paul calls us to mortify, put to death our flesh more and more. Philippians 2.12, we are still working out our salvation that we have with fear and with trembling. Now Paul says to be sanctified, that he God's will for our lives is sanctification. Now he's going to get into some specifics and how the Thessalonians can grow. Uh, around here, belief, the belief that being good enough hamstrings what God has called us to do. It hamstrings obedience. And uh, a lot of people, what they do is at some point in life, they, they put on the cruise control, and they cruise right on to the casket. And God has not called us to put on cruise control. He has not called us to retire from our faith, but to keep on growing. So Paul's going to dig into some verses here. And um, I invite you during this time to search yourself. See how you're doing in reference to this passage. Think about how you need to let the Spirit speak and help you develop as God's holy vessel. To put it in street language, you ain't done yet. So you still can't retire from your faith. Well, let's go for it. Number one, he says this, that you, we become sanctified. Uh, our sanctification has to do with abstaining from sexual immorality. 
And I thank JD for this passage at this point. Every church I've been in, I've had to deal with this topic, and we're just going to dig right into it. But a major hamstringer for men today um, is shame over this particular issue of sexual immorality. And why did Paul mention this? And, and, and I was studying, like, why would Paul, why, why go to that specific example here? And, and you need to know, in this context, it was all about the Greco-Roman world. And the Greco-Roman world was both humanistic and pantheistic. And with humanism, they valued the beauty of the human body, and they believed it was wrong to stop the impulses and desires of their natural body. In fact, we were in Israel. Shall you remember this? We went to a Hellenistic place in Israel, and it was a dining area. And guess what was surrounding inside the dining area? Open toilets. So you'd be dining, and you look over to someone using the bathroom, all in the room, and people would dine without any clothes on. And they would compete in the Olympics without any clothes on. And the worst thing I heard is I was a wrestler. They used to do Greco-Roman wrestling that way as well. And I'm glad I lived in the 80s, not, wrestled in the 90s, because it's much different. Well, then again, the singlets aren't much better, I guess. But they would do everything new. They lifted up the body. Any urge the body had was somehow spiritual to fulfill that random impulse of the flesh. And some of the pantheistic groups... They would worship their deity by doing things in the flesh, if you know what I mean. And uh, they would worship through that. And actually today you see that in Wicca, in Satanism, and some of the Celtic religions. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. You ever hear the phrase, do as you want if it harm none? Anybody ever hear that before? Do as you want if it harm none. Yeah. And um, sounds pretty good on the surface until you start thinking about, well, how do we know if it's harming? Then, then the whole, whole argument falls apart, right? How do you know if it's harming someone or not? Who determines that it's harm? And then the Satanism there, and I've studied Satanism, and really I just studied it so I could teach on it. Um, and I had some friends who were into that. Do not neglect the inner animal. And in fact, it is immoral. It is wrong to neglect your inner beast or your inner animal. So to say, I'm going to be pure sexually, or I'm going to control my body, they'd be like, wrong. You're wrong at that. You've got to let that stuff go. Be free. The word here for sexual immorality is pornero. And it's different than the word adultery. Uh, we need to abstain from anything sexually immoral. In fact, here's a bold statement I'm going to make, and this is why I hesitate to put this online, but I'm just going to say it anyhow, is... Godly sex is consensual between a husband and a wife. Godly sex is consensual between a husband and a wife. That is the only way to be sexually moral, aside from abstinence. It isn't lawful with someone you're dating, or someone you're shacking up with, or someone else's future or current wife, whether it be just visual on the internet or on TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram. Sex is only moral when it is consensual with your spouse. There was, uh, last week, 
there was one of my Christian giants, um, and I respect this guy. His teachings are amazing. And it came out that he fell into sexual sin. He had a couple massage parlors, and he used to do lewd acts in front of women. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Where have all the spiritual giants gone? I mean, when I was a young Christian, there were all these men and some women, too, that I looked up to. And one by one, they're fallen. And you learn this about them. And you learn that, where have the giants gone? And then the Lord reminded me, you be the giants. You be the one who is set apart and be holy. And I would say to you guys, you be the spiritual giant. Not that you're perfect or something special other than Christ in you. You be the one with integrity and with morality, and me as well. God wants, even if the leaders fall, God still wants you to be a holy vessel set apart for him. So what do we do if we become just like the world? If we find ourselves as holy vessels getting dirtier or struggling with some things, what do we do? Well, I'll get into that in a minute, but you ever met a bad store manager before? You ever gone to a store that's poorly run? I was in an auto parts store, and um, I wanted to get some floor mats for, for our car. And um, I, I walk in the door and stand by the counter, and there's the manager and the, and the staff are over talking in a huddle. <laughs> They're joke, joke around talking, and, and I'm standing there for like a minute. You know, I was a manager. So if you're a manager, you know how you get irritated easily when you see that. Get to work! You know, and uh, I'm standing there, and I get closer to the counter, kind of give them a clue, and, and they all look over. Yeah, so anyhow, and they kind of keep talking. And I'm getting frustrated, so fine. So I'm going to go get my floor mats myself behind the counter. So I walk behind the counter, because I can't see that far to this. I'm looking at the floor mats, the sizes. Nothing. They need, he thought for sure they would have said, uh, excuse me, sir, you can't be behind the counter. They didn't even care I was behind the counter because they were busy. And the manager was busy. So finally, I'm like, you know, I got so fed up. I'm like, I'm out of here. So I walked to the door. I grabbed the door handle and a little bell went. And finally, someone looks over and says, oh, can I help you? And I look back. I said, doubt it. And I walked out the door. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what poor man. If I was a manager there, I'd be like, what? If I saw that, I'd be like, what are you guys doing? When a customer walks in, you say, good morning. How can I help you? Anything I can get you? You know, you do something, you acknowledge them. Don't you dare have a fun conversation with your friends and ignore the customer, right? Isn't that like basic one-on-one? God has called us to be good managers, not to be lame old managers. God has called us to manage our impulses, verse 4 and 5 says. He wants us to be Good managers, not lame managers. Let me read verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, there's, as I was reading this, there's four interpretations that commentators give on what this passage is talking about. The first one is a Jewish understanding. Um, and they believe this passage teaches that you control your own body by taking a wife. Similar to how Paul says it is better to marry than to burn. Because sex outside of marriage, of course, is poor management of your life. Then another understanding of this passage 
is to live with your wife in a way that is holy and honorable, to treat her with holiness and honor. A third understanding is to manage your sexual life with your wife in a holy and honorable way that it be consensual. All right, It's not you get to do whatever your flesh feels like. You're in a relationship where you need to honor one another in that. And then there's a fourth understanding, and there's an author by named uh, David H. Stern. Uh, he translates it like this. To manage his sexual impulses in a holy and honorable mar- manner. All take this to be in the context of a marriage, that we don't have full dominion over the sexual relationship. In other words, even in marriage, we are called to have self-control. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And just as the Lord never calls us to give, we never have a chance, God says, do not give full vent to your anger. We're called to control our flesh with anger. And just like that, uh, our sexual urges, we're also called to control. We're always called to manage our vessel or our body well. And there was a survey done at this church right before I was here. I don't know if I mentioned this already or not, where 70% of men in this church struggle in this area. So what do we do with that? We learn to be good managers of our bodies. Now the next verse says this. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why does sexual immorality transgress and wrong a brother? Why, why would he not say a sister? And when I was reading, I'm like, why in the world would Paul say you sin against a brother if you do this type of sin? Why didn't Paul say sister? The reason why is it is someone else's daughter that you're sinning against. You're sinning against that dad. You're sinning against someone's future wife. And in marriage, when you're married to the person, it is still a daughter of God that you're in a relationship with. That's why you sin against that person. And the warning here is, God will deal with you if you mistreat someone else's daughter or spouse. There is an element of recognizing that the Lord sees us here. It says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And in Proverbs 15.3, 2 Chronicles 16.9, Uh, God tells us that his eyes search to and fro. God sees the good and what they do, and God sees the evil in what they do. There's nothing hidden before his eyes, and you're accountable to how you handle your body as a Christian. So how do we follow God's will here? How can we be set apart and, and the pressure... In society is a little bit of conformity is okay, as long as you don't give full vent to your sin. But a little bit, as long as we're not as bad as what society says, right? Isn't there acceptable sins in some Christian circles? No, 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 no. That's not how God's called us. God has called us to honor him. How do we live set apart? Number one, we remember who we are. Let me read it to you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
we remember that we are God's holy vessels. You are already clean in Christ through his precious blood. Jesus told his disciples, as a matter of fact, when he washed his feet, remember he said you're already clean, you just need to wash your feet again. Uh, you can check it out, John 13, 10, he says that. We're already clean. Do you remember the movie Wizard of, well, of course you remember the movie Wizard of Oz. Do you remember what Dorothy's doing early in the movie? What, she, what is she walking on? The pig pen. She's walking on the pig fence. She's got her beautiful black and white dress on, right? Or I think it was blue and white, wasn't it, when it turned to color? This is before it turned color, magically. And she's walking on this thing. And what does she do? She falls in the pig pen. And now, picture of Dorothy was to say at that point, oh, I fell into the pig pen. And, and you're stuck there. And, and then she's full of pig slop and pig mud. Do, you know, pigs kind of go to the bathroom everywhere, don't they? I don't know much about pigs. I stay away from pigs. And she, what if she just sat there for the whole movie? I'm stuck in pig, pig poop and stuff. No. What should Dorothy do in that situation? What would you tell her? First, you'd tell her, get out of the pig pen. And the, remember the guys jumped in and they got her out of that thing. Get out of that mess. Second, put your clothes in the wash. Wash that nasty blue and white outfit. Third, go take a shower. Fourth, don't do that again. Don't walk on the pig pen fence and practice your gymnastics. Go put a two-by-four on the ground and walk on it instead, right? That's a good illustration of us. We fall into the pig pen. Sometimes we're, we're holy vessels, but sometimes we get dirty and we do things. We find ourselves, man, we sinned and we blew it. In the, what do we do? Satan wants you to sit in a pig pen and pout. Be like, well, I guess I'm ineffective and I should just stay in a pig pen and give up all hope. You know, that's, that's what Satan would want you to do. And maybe that feels good that you're somehow earning God's favor by being miserable and being defeated. No. God would say to you, Quit. Get out of that situation. You're clean. Now you got to deal with. You still got to deal with your sin and still deal with that stuff. And don't do that anymore. You know, if you find yourself sitting in one area or another, don't get into that situation again. You may need to put a filter on the internet. You may need to quit going to Taco Bell or whatever the deal is. Quit it. Quit walking the pig fence. Clean up your acts. Take the necessary steps to get rid of all impurity and be holy. Quit compromising your walk with God here. Remember that God has called us not for impurity, but for holiness. We are holy vessels. Get out of the mud of sin. This is our role as Christians. Number two. So number one, remember who we are. Number two, realize the Spirit is also at work in you. You've got to get out of the mud yourself. It's not like you just sit there and wait for the Spirit to lift you up. But you do have the Spirit to help you in this. Verse 8 says this, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Although we take efforts in this, and we need to do something about it, God has graciously given us the gift of his Spirit to lead us. Now, how does this work? What does that look like? Well, an example this morning, as you're sitting here, the Holy Spirit is probably bringing some things to memory that you should work on, right? Maybe it's in the area of sexual purity. Maybe it's in another area. I don't know. 
we have a choice as he brings stuff to our mind. Choice number one, we yield to his leading. We think, you know, i got to work on that. And you take what the Holy Spirit's been, you know, got to work on this area. You know, as you're sitting here, you go home and you're like, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord and, and work through this with him. That's one choice we have to make, that we can make. The other choice is that we, that we ignore it. Now, when I was younger, I used to sit in sermons kind of like a zombie, and I'd just do my, do my time, I guess I could call it. I'd just sit there for an hour, and sometimes I would fall asleep and sleep would win, and, some, and I had no clue what the person was saying the whole time. I just know whether I liked him or not, whether he told good stories. I still do that to some degree. Um, I, I sit there... But now I, I've learned over the year, I bring my Bible, and it becomes like, an, like a Bible study. And, and the preacher's preaching, J.D.'s speaking, and where's J.D.? Did he leave my sermon? And uh, he's already heard it once. And uh, I'm taking notes, and I'm kind of like doing my own Bible study along with him. You know? And that's, I stay engaged, and I'm thinking, Lord, what do you want me to work on here? What do you want me to take away from this? Sometimes it's encouragement. Usually it's a corhorn, you've got to work on this area in your life. And, and then I go home and I, and I work on that. Uh, sometimes, I've got to be honest, I do get distracted. I don't work on anything. But we have a choice, and each week I have a choice, what I'm going to do. Am I going to yield to the Holy Spirit or am I going to ignore it? Invest time in letting the Holy Spirit lead you as you read his word and pray. Expect the Holy Spirit to give direction daily. Are you listening to his lead? Now, we've dug into a lot of things this morning uh, in this very short passage. So I kind of summarized your takeaways. If you're going to take away some stuff today and challenge yourself, here are some good takeaways. Um, Number one, we have been called by God to be set apart for salvation. Amen? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad at some point? Why, Lauren, you'll probably listen to um, uh, Tesla in your headphones one day. <laughs> and, and the Lord said, Jesus, Lauren. It's about Jesus. And, Lord, and the Lord called. Aren't you glad at some point he called you to salvation? Amen. Number two, we have been called by God called out by God to be set apart as his holy vessel. Number three, we have been called by God to live for his pleasure and his purposes. If you're a Christian, that's that's God's will for your life. Number four, we have been called by God to be difference. We're not the common cup any longer. We're different. We're called to be like Jesus. Number five, a question. Have you, have you been called by God individually? Have you been called by God? Number six, what do you need to do to separate from common things. I look around this room, and I think there's a bunch of people that need to grow spiritually. 
I look in the mirror and I knew there was someone who needed me. I look at myself and think, man, you know, I, I look at Shelly and I think, why are you still married to a person like, I got more issues than a magazine. And uh, I know I got areas to grow on. Right? Shelly, did you say amen there? You're afraid to. Because then I'll say and I'll, my issues will come out. We all need to separate from common things. We all carry a lot of baggage in life, whether it be our upbringing. Number seven. This is not from the passage, but I'm going to add anyhow. The day of his return is coming soon. There's some birth pangs going on in an increasing manner. So let's be ready to meet him. Let's be holy vessels, ready. Now, he's going to come in the air to take us to be with himself. Or, you're going to die somehow and meet him. Regardless, he's going to come at some point. Let's be ready to meet him. Let us finish well. Let's pray together.